This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. The National Assessment of Educational Progress is widely known as the nation's report card. Like everything else in public life, it's generally known by its initials, N-A-E-P, or NAEP. So we're going to talk about NAEP, but this is a test, and it's sort of like the nation's report card. And it's been around since the late 60s when it began testing representative samples of students nationwide to see how well they performed in math and reading. So that original NAEP test was around for about a decade or so. And then there was a thought that it wasn't good enough. It wasn't giving us the kind of information the American public wanted. So a second NAEP was created under a new governing structure, and it was done sort of towards the end of the Reagan administration and sort of branches into the Bush administration. And um, this second NAEP uh, was fortunately set up by Bill Bennett, who was the Secretary of Education for Ronald Reagan. And the important thing is, is that he asked Chester Finn, who had served as Reagan's Assistant Secretary of Education, he asked Chester Finn to, to carry out the task. And it was under Dr. Finn's leadership that uh, NAEP was reconceptualized in a wide variety of things. And now we have, 30-some years later, Chester Finn, now a senior fellow at the Fordham Institute, writing a compelling book about all that took place back then. It's entitled Assessing the Nation's Report Card Challenges and Choices for the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Dr. Finn describes the book as the biography of NAEP. It can also be read as a quasi-memoir because uh, Dr. Finn played such a central role in NAEP's life and times. Well, I'm delighted to have uh, Chester Finn with me on the Education Exchange, and his friends and colleagues call him Checker, and I'm going to do that on on this podcast. So, Checker, uh, welcome to the Education Exchange. It's nice to see your image on my Zoom screen once again. Nice to be back with you, Paul. Thanks so much. So, Checker, why did you write the biography a test? It sounds like the same thing as writing a book on the history of a yardstick. <laughs> it isn't, I hope it isn't quite that boring for those that uh, steal themselves to read it. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, partly biography of a test, but honestly, as you alluded, it's partly autobiography of me uh, because my own life and work have intersected in a bunch of ways over the last really 50 years uh, with uh, NAEP, as it is known. Uh, going back to my days as a very junior aide in the Nixon White House in 1969, when the new director of the Education Commission of the States came in to see me to tell me about this new test that the Education Commission of the States was just starting to run for on behalf of the federal government. So why was this run by the Education Commission of the States? Why would, why would you turn over a a national test to uh, a commission of states. It was a politically very astute move by the private foundations and academics who designed it because they 
they were getting a whole lot of pushback from the public education establishment that really didn't want this at all. Uh, this external audit, this external check on whether kids were learning anything. America had never had anything like that before. And the people that ran the uh, school systems of America didn't want it. And in if it had been left with elite foundations and the federal government and a bunch of pointy-headed academics uh, to run it, there would have been huge political outcry. But by turning it over to an organization run by the states, they uh, prevented a lot of the political pushback that would otherwise have occurred. Well, they also did one other thing, Checker, and that is they, they said, we're going to measure only how the country as a whole is doing and certain subgroups like, like ethnic and racial subgroups and, and gender, uh, boys and girls. And, and, and then they, I guess they had it by urban, you know, big cities, suburbs and, and rural towns. They didn't ever test, provide any information on any school, any school district, any state in the country. So it was sort of that was, a test that didn't measure it, anything that was important. Except for the whole country, which did was important. And uh, after a nation at risk in 1983, that became even more important. But that is exactly when the governors got into the act and started demanding comparative information on their states. And at this point, the school establishment could no longer push back successfully. Um, the governors wanted it. The nation was going into hell in a handbasket because of its uh, crummy uh, academic achievement. And so the political climate had changed from the 60s to the 80s in a, in a pretty significant way. And that is what led to the reinvention, as you described it, uh, in the late 80s, um, really 20 years after NAEP had been born, um, uh, the reinvention in a new form that included uh, several things, one of which was state-by-state -state data, which 14 years after that became mandatory under the No Child Left Behind Act, where Congress said, not only will we have the option of state-level reporting, we're going to require state-level reporting from NAEP. Uh, and that started in, in, in 2002. And also they shifted governance from, from the Education Commission of the States to the U.S. Department of Education. Right? Well, there's a big... Yes sort no. of the governance has been a more complicated story. The federal government has already had some unit which paid for NAEP, um, and it's been various parts of the of what is now the Institute for Education Sciences. Um, and it, it the, the the responsibility for those grants and contracts to pay for this moved back and forth among the various units over time. They changed the, their names and things of the of federal government, but it's always been administered on an outsourced basis by contractors. Those are the people that go into the schools and see the kids and uh, actually um, also do the initial scoring of the tests. And so- And it, designing the tests too, don't they? Yes, it, it's a sort of a joint venture between the, 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 the psychometricians and statisticians at the Department of Ed and the Independent Governing Board and the contractors. Uh, and it's a complicated process. But the, the management of it shifted from the education of the states to the educational testing service in 1983. And then ETS is still the main contractor for administering it. But today, governance, I would call it, basic decisions about what should be tested um, belongs to this independent governing board called the NAGB, the National Assessment Governing Board. Now, you were the chair of that board for a period of time, were you? 
I was the first chair of the board, thanks to Bill Bennett appointing me as he walked out the door of the Department of Education. And how long did you serve on that? Board? Well, I was on the board for eight years and chairman for two years, the first two of those years. And that was pretty important because those two years were right after the Charlottesville Education Summit that uh, uh, Bush 41 and the governors uh, called. But there was one governor who didn't show up. Yeah, the governor of Minnesota, I think, missed his plane or didn't know it was happening or something like that. Anyway, uh, 49 of them made it. It was a big deal. It was the first education summit in many decades. And it was early in Bush's presidency. And remember, he had wanted to be known when he campaigned in, uh, in 88. And he declared that he wanted to be known as the education president. Nobody had ever wanted that title before, though Lyndon Johnson might have deserved it. But anyway, um, so soon after getting elected, um, Bush 41 summons the governors. That was 89 to Charlottesville for this summit. And they came out of the summit having declared a bunch of national education goals for the year 2000, which was 11 years away. And the, the goals that they declared for the country included a, a rather brash statement that every child uh, will leave grades four, eight, and 12 having demonstrated proficiency in challenging subject matter in the following subjects. And then they named five subjects. And the question was, how would anybody ever know whether any progress was being made toward that hugely ambitious goal? And the answer was NAEP. And the National Assessment Governing Board pushed, I will admit by me, um, said, let's us do that. Uh, let's us come up with a measuring stick that can be used to track progress toward this um, daring, bold, and, and gutsy national goal. And So you set three standards, as I recall. Uh, yes. You said, uh, said, okay, there's a basic level of knowledge, and then there's genuine proficiency, such as what the governors wanted, and then there's the advanced, the people who are really doing extraordinarily well. Right. So, so how did you set these? You well, know, the first... how did you decide it's basic and how did you decide <laughs> with proficiency? We fumbled a little at the start. There were a couple of false starts. It was not an easy thing to do. It's still not an easy thing to do. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> first complicated decision was how many levels to have. Uh, and we did end up with three um, because, among other things, the late Albert Shanker uh, came to us and said, if you only set one, it will be too low. Um, and uh, we, so we, we decided this was really a kind of a, just a policy decision that the middle level, the one we gave the term proficient to, should be the, the, the core benchmark for adequate knowledge and skills. Basic was going to be a kind of stair step on the way to proficient, and advanced was really meant to be world class. It's it's what it's what the smart kids around the world do, uh, and uh, we gave them those names. It might have been a mistake to use the word basic for the lowest level because a lot of people in America seem to think that basic skills is all anybody needs, um, and uh, but we did decide that proficient would be at aspirational. It would not be based on a norm of what people are currently currently learning. It would not be based on what somebody thinks is grade level. It would be based on what kids should know and be able to do at those grade levels where NAEP gives. The well, test. let me push on that a little bit, because that has been pretty controversial, as I, as I am sure you 
fully realized. And let me just say that in 2019, and this is before the pandemic, when NAEP administered its math test, only 23% of seniors in high school were identified as proficient. How can you set a standard that's so high that only 23% of seniors in high school can reach it? Well, the sad but true story is that um, the, no, nobody's ever gotten above 40 some percent at pro the proficient level at any grade level in any subject. Uh, the, uh, and the 12th grade uh, levels have been, have been dismaying for a long time. And if we didn't have NAEP, we wouldn't know it. Uh, what it says is we're graduating a lot of kids from high school with diplomas, many of whom go into college, but in fact, they are not proficient in math or reading or these, these other core subjects. This is a very important thing to know. By the way, NAEP isn't the only, isn't the only place that we get that from. We, the SAT and the ACT people also um, set a, a notion of what's ready for college and uh, dismayingly small fractions of 12th graders that take the SAT and the ACT turn out to be ready for college. So yes, the proficient per NAEP is aspirational. It's a should. Uh, and we have had to, we, the governing board, originally including me, has had to defend that over the years. There have been all sorts of, of people saying, well, it's not scientific. It's not based on a, a current reality. In fact, they did some important research at the governing board about five years ago that actually validated the proficient level on NAEP in reading as being what you need to be ready for college, at least in Florida, which is where they where they did the, the studies. The math proficient was a little bit higher than was truly needed, but not much. So well, the, the math one always strikes me as a little bit, you know, more aspirational than the reading one. But 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 here my my take on this is 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 would you know it's it's one thing to be aspirational. You know, we want to land a man on the moon. That's what Kennedy wanted to do. And he wanted to do it. But, you know, it was aspirational, but it was attainable. Aren't you asking the schools to just launch a man to Jupiter? <laughs> well, when the governors and the president of the United States said that every, every young American should leave grades four, eight, and 12 uh, proficient in um, challenging subject matter, what do you think they were doing? And they only gave the country 11 years to get there. I mean, talk about an aspiration. Uh, that, was, that was Neptune, not Jupiter. Um, and um, we decided that, that aspirational was where America needed to be. The nation at risk said we weren't doing nearly well enough. And they said that to a country that was smug and complacent and an education establishment that was deeply uh, self-interested, self-absorbed, and complacent. Uh, and uh, the nation at risk was shook things up. The, the governors and president shook things up. And all we were doing, he says um, blandly, uh, was trying to help them do their job. Well, no, I mean, it's really a terribly uh, a significant development in uh, our thinking about our, our educational system uh, but a lot of people think it's, it was a, a part of the process of leading to federal control of education and there was, was to be resisted. Uh, so 
were you, I mean, you, you knew this was there from the beginning with the Education Commission of the States, but were you concerned that this would provoke a backlash, that you would get uh, an anti-federal control of education movement such as you eventually get against Common Core? You know, we've had that against almost everything the federal government has done so far, except NAEP, which has been almost miraculously uh, immune so far from being accused of being a national school board or a national uh, plot by politicians. Uh, I think that this independent governing board, which has now been around since 1990, I mean, it's got 30 years, 32 years of track record. It is a Noah's Ark of bipartisan representativeness with 26 members uh, serving terms and you know two governors, one of each party, two chief state school officers, two state legislators, two school superintendents. I could go on down the list. Um, it is a Noah's Ark, and it has done a pretty good job over the years of uh, keeping its uh, uh, both keeping its its ability to reach consensus and keeping its uh, integrity from even the Department of Education, where it is geographically situated. I think that's helped a lot. I worry about it going forward in our ever more polarized society, but up to now it's done a really good job of, uh, of making this thing paid for by the federal government, but not really an arm of the government. Well, this is all, uh, I agree with everything you're saying there, but, but up until when COVID arrives. And so when COVID arrives, all of a sudden a huge feeling, oh, we can't test now, because if we test now, things are going to come in bad. And, and I guess they couldn't even literally do a test when they shut down schools in the spring of 2020. So, um, so yeah, so has COVID changed the picture? Well, the governing board uh, struggled mightily over whether they could um, even administer the test that was scheduled for that year. And they actually had a split vote on this. It was not a consensus. But in the end, they were persuaded by the contractors that it wasn't even safe uh, to send um, people into the schools with these tests in hand. And moreover, uh, there wasn't going to be a valid sample because there weren't enough kids. And NAEP is a sample-based test, something we, we, we need to underscore in this conversation. It is not a universal test. And if you can't get a valid sample, you're not going to get valid data. The, the council of the great city schools, the big city school superintendents, had already said they would not participate So um, because they didn't have enough kids in school or no kids in school due to COVID. So if it's not physically safe for the test givers and the sample is not going to be valid, you have to pause it, but uh, but to NAEP's credit, they were back at it um, by the following year, and they are today. A lot of things have gotten delayed a year uh, because of COVID, but NAEP is back at it. They 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 gave the 2022 tests to fourth and eighth graders just uh, just a couple a couple weeks ago, really, uh, and we'll have those results in the fall, and we'll also have some before and after data on COVID which is gonna be the most definitive data in the country on the COVID effect, which is not, not, a, not a pretty one, um, on American kids. You know, that is, that is a huge contribution because a lot of people are, are saying there was a, a serious learning loss, but up until now, we really are relying on um, some selected data from a group of schools that uh, participated in, 
in a, a, a regional uh, association and uh, some data coming from some states. So mm -hmm. this is really going to be, uh, everybody's waiting to hear uh, just exactly what the story is. Well, that's the value of NAEP, Paul. That's, it is the nation's report card for a reason. And that's why, um, why I think it's important, uh, an important thing to have and to, and to try to preserve. But some people say testing is placed students in a, in a straitjacket. Schools are being taught or teaching to the test. The focus on reading and math has narrowed the purposes of our educational system. Is there any truth to these criticisms? Well, let's limit it to NAEP for a second. Because NAEP is a sample test that does not report anything about your school or your child, or in most cases, your district, it is a low stakes test and there's no point in teaching to it. Uh, there might be a point in teaching to state assessments that have high stakes consequences for kids and schools, but there is no point in teaching to NAEP and uh, most schools are never touched by it in any way. They don't even participate in it, just the sample participates in it. The, 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 so I don't think NAEP is vulnerable to either the uh, teaching of the test problems or the cheating problems and so on. What it, what it does do because of Congress is help keep the focus on reading and math, because those are the two subjects in which it is mandatory for states to take part in NAEP. Uh, and so to the extent that the country has gone overboard on, on reading and math, NAEP is part of that problem. Um, it would be um, easy to solve that problem. And my personal choice, though this isn't gonna happen anytime soon, would be to mandate NAEP for, for states in other subjects too, so that um, we get uh, equal data on science and history and, uh, and, 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 and writing and uh, you name it. But um, I, I think NAEP is not um, a high stakes test. Now, the problem with, with being a low stakes test, let me just finish this thought, is that um, schools sometimes don't wanna participate in it, even when they're part of the sample, because they don't see any reward for their school. Uh, coming from participation. So that's an issue. Why bother taking it if it's not going to give us anything we can use? So could you make it mandatory? Could you, if you, if your name comes up in the sample, couldn't the school be asked to do this or they lose federal funding or some penalty would be imposed upon them? In theory, sure, you could. In practice, I think you really don't want that degree of heavy handedness uh, from the federal government in, in this realm. Uh, so far, they've managed to hold it together with um, some incentives for kids to take part, some suasion by chief state school officers. I've been asked a few times by, by, by heads of National Center for Education Statistics, did I know anyone in Ohio, for example, that I might get to lean on a few schools to participate in the sample? Um, so they, they do all sorts of stuff to persuade and encourage. I don't think you want to mandate it for this test or you'll get into more of the backlash that you were alluding to. Well, here's another criticism that's come up, and this one is not so well known, but uh, I've been tracking NAEP trends uh, over the last uh, number of years uh, on, on the main NAEP, the one that we're talking about here, and it's showing a very steep increase in student performance in eighth grade. Eighth grade math performance has gone up very steeply, but the PISA test shows a decline in math performance among kids at age 15. 
Well, you know, eighth grade is age 14, you know, maybe some 13 year olds mm -hmm. in there, but it is, it's about the same age. And one test is showing a very steep increase in math performance and the other test is showing a decrease. Which of these two tests should I believe? Well, let's keep in mind that they are, NAEP, NAEP does try to mirror the American curriculum in a general sort of way. Um, and PISA explicitly doesn't do anything of the sort. Um, PISA is based on an international sense of what 15 year olds should know and be able to do. So um, each has a different rationale for what it does and emerges from a kind of different theory of what's, of, of what, uh, what's the reference group for, for deciding what's on the test. So having said that, if there's a widening gap between NAEP at, uh, in math at, at, at eighth grade and PISA at age 15, then this is worth further investigation. I can't explain um, the reason for it. Uh, I mostly look at uh, the NAEP discontinuity between eighth grade going up and 12th grade being flat and ask myself, uh, what is going wrong in our high schools if eighth graders are better prepared than they used to be, but they're not coming out any better? Uh, I think that's its own mystery. Yeah, no, there are mysteries out there with the, with the testing data. And this one that I just mentioned is, an, is a newly identified one. I don't think anybody's really talked about that. Uh, my own ideas are similar to yours, that NAEP is tracking the curriculum, but that suggests the curriculum may be dumbing down, that, that we aren't teaching, uh, we aren't setting as high expectation uh, for eighth graders in math as we used to. That is a possible explanation, but but the math um, framework for what is on the NAEP test hasn't changed much in probably 20 years. And the questions are meant to be calibrated and the definitions of proficient and so forth are meant to be calibrated uh, so that they don't change um, over time. So I'm not sure whether the curriculum is dumbing down in the United States. Uh, yeah, well, it, it's a... Uh... I don't think we're going to solve that one uh, at, at, on this uh, podcast, but it's, a, it's an interesting uh, issue out there. Uh, and your 12th grade one is too. Why do you think that 12th grade test performances don't show much improvement over time when the younger kids seem to be doing a lot better? Well, the usual excuse that people give, and I don't want to completely discredit it, is that more kids are staying in 12th grade than used to do so and are graduating and that therefore the uh, and NAEP only tests kids in school in 12th grade. Uh, obviously in eighth grade, everybody's in school, but in 12th grade, you've had dropouts. And so if you've got a widening population of kids who um, previously wouldn't have been in, 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 in the test sample because they weren't in school, uh, you have a partial potential explanation for why the scores are going down. Um, it is, the demographics are also changing, though this would be true in eighth grade and fourth grade as well, different student population mix is changing. Um, but mostly, I think, honestly, that our high schools are doing a pretty crummy job for a very large number of kids. And even worse is over time, because basically, if, if the kids are getting better at eighth grade, and you're not seeing any improvement at 12th grade, then there's got to be a, a decline in the quality of the high school. 
with the possible exception of the wide, the larger population of, of, of kids taking the test. That's right, the, which is hard to, because this, this is, I mean, there has been a recent increase in the graduation uh, rate, yes. but it's fairly recent. It doesn't cover this entire time period. Right, and the, we have a flat NAEP score line for a very long time in 12th grade, or and also uh, the other old-fashioned NAEP among 17-year-olds has been flat for a long time. So what do you recommend going forward, Checker? Well, first of all, I recommend that we uh, hang on to NAEP, uh, not, not let it go the way of other tests. Uh, secondly, uh, it does need to be modernized in a bunch of ways and made, and made more efficient and, and, and the unit cost brought down. And if we can do that, then maybe we can afford to do some of the things that NAEP is, is not doing right now. Uh, to me, the most egregious example is that we don't have 12th grade data at the state level. We have fourth and eighth grade data at the state level, but at the 12th grade level, we have only national data. Uh, you would think if you were the governor of Massachusetts that you'd wanna know how Massachusetts kids are doing at the end of high school. Um, and similarly in Ohio and Alabama. Uh, so I think that's an example of something they're not doing that they ought to be doing. Um, and. Uh, there are a bunch of other things I believe they ought to be doing that they're that they're not doing. But uh, uh, hanging on to this and trying to preserve the level of consensus that has made it credible uh, as we enter into an era of culture wars and political schism, the governing board itself is vulnerable to um, schism. It came close to schism on its recent reading framework. It's just now entering into its new science framework, which is an increasingly touchy topic politically. Uh, so I'm a little worried about, about um, the preservation of the credibility that I think comes from, from the feeling that there really is a consensus underlying this thing. Well, if it's gonna test the curriculum, well then the questions that you put on NAEP are implying this is what the curriculum should be. So all of a sudden you're into the federal government deciding what the curriculum should be, which has always been very controversial. Well, it's a tricky mix of testing the curriculum that should be and testing the curriculum that is. And that's why these frameworks take years to reach agreement on and why sometimes they're hard to reach agreement on. Um, nobody wants the, the, the things, the questions on the test to include a lot of material that kids have never seen. Um, you're trying to find out how well they have learned basically things that most of them are at least being given the chance to learn uh, in school. Um, and you don't want the, the content of the test to get too far ahead of what is being taught. Anyway, that's another example of a complicated trade-off between what is being taught and what we would what some people would like to see get taught. But now think about that in the context of a science framework and then open your mind to the question of, well, climate change. That's not part of the old science framework. Should it be part of the new science framework? And if so, from what point of view and how big a part, you can begin to see the dangers ahead. Well, so this is uh, very informative and tells us a lot about why people should pick up a copy of your book. But tell me, what have I missed here? Is there an important element of the book that you think needs to be mentioned to our listeners? I think the, uh, well, the history will be interesting to some people. It's about the first half of the book, and then the current issues that, uh, that NAEP is grappling with and the future scenarios of the second half of the book. 
uh, there's there's plenty of current issues uh, that are that are that are facing NAEP and and people have differing opinions of them. I mentioned a couple of them. How do you modernize it? How do you make it more efficient? The National Academy of Sciences has just weighed in with a with a critique of NAEP, uh, and um, and the head of Institute for Education Sciences is having an audit done, a sort of a financial audit, uh, to see if they can figure out where's all the money going. Uh, so there are a bunch of issues like this raised in the book. Uh, none of them uh, invalidate uh, or or even diminish the value of NAEP for the country. They just speak to the uh, the, the the level of complexity and challenge that this fifty year old program has has achieved and. It's a delicate thing. Are we going to be able to sustain it, modernize it, and and not let it uh, crash uh, on the on the shoals ahead? Well, thank you very much, uh, Checker, for uh, this uh, illuminating conversation, and all the best to you on the sales of your of your book. Much appreciate the opportunity, Paul, and uh, uh, great to see you again. I have been speaking with Chester Finn, the former Assistant Secretary of Education and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He is also a, a fellow of, at the Fordham Institute, and he's the author of a recently released book entitled Assessing the Nation's Report Card, Challenges and Choices for the National Assessment of Educational Progress. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a new podcast on the Education X website, every Monday at noon. Thank you for joining me.